This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with Tom Murphy, now based in Coolant, Western Australia. Tom's passion for farming runs deep, a passion that's led him on a journey across the Nullarbor and back, working for some of the biggest names in Australian agriculture. In this episode, you'll hear about how saying yes to opportunities has taken Tom on the ultimate ag adventure, his unwavering commitment to community, and how his experience with succession has enabled him to embrace farming without a farm. Let's jump in. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you today. No dramas. I was sort of hoping that my first podcast would be something like the Howie Games, talking about <laughs> late late call up to the Australian Test team and my international cricket success. But beyond the farm gate, it is. So, yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, <laughs> but you've been on a massive journey with agriculture, and your passion for ag has taken you on. You know, a remarkable adventure through New South Wales, Queensland, and then across the Nullarbor to WA. But it all started back in Victoria. Can you tell us a little bit about the farm you grew up on and where your love for farming comes from? Sure. Well, yeah, grew up on a little 316-acre dairy farm northwest of a little town called Newmerka. It was just idyllic, I suppose, for a, for a young kid. Probably, I think, when Dad bought it, it was probably the most rundown farm in the district. But to me, you know, all those slabs of concrete that house snakes and whatever it was lying around was just a playground. So it was fantastic. There's always something to do on a farm. So yeah, just grew up being out and about. I don't remember too much inside time. We were always outside and seemed to do a lot of work. Uh, I think I was about 12 when I did my first full milking on my own. So that's... uh, you know, I've got a daughter who's about to turn 13 in a couple of weeks. So milking 250 cows at that age just still sort of blows my mind. But uh, that's the way it was. Uh, we always had to chip in. And, yeah, mum and dad were did really tough. But uh, those tough memories don't uh, don't sort of stick with me. It's all, it's all the happy memories. So just loved it. Went to school just up the road. Can't think of any better way to grow up. It was, it was real privilege. And, Tom... From there, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with succession on the family farm? And and you, you didn't end up on that property, did you? No, no. So I, I grew up not really hearing great things about succession. Mum and Dad's experience wasn't really great with their farm that they were on in Western Victoria being sold with, with no notice at all. Dad was... He was up north in Kempsey, New South Wales, managing some poplar plantations at the time and... He got word that his stepfather, whose farm it was in Victoria, had passed away. They packed up their two kids at the time in the old Peugeot station wagon and returned to Lake Bolac. Just uh, that was just before I was born. I think I was uh, mum was pregnant with me when they when they went down there. So they ran that farm for a couple of years, and out of the blue, my grandma walked into the kitchen and pretty much said that she'd sold the farm to a neighbour and left mum, who uh, mum and dad, who they had 
four kids by that time. So pretty much left them with nowhere to go. Yeah, they started looking around and managed to get some vendor finance on a on a dairy farm. Banks wouldn't even look at them. They they sort of didn't have too much behind them. They probably had enough for a bit of working capital. So yeah, they got into it with nothing. And after sixteen years of hard work from from mum and dad, the farm was sort of taken from one of the one of the worst in the district to to being up there with one of the best. So hearing about that side of it wasn't fantastic. You know, that's that's probably succession going badly. I would have been about 14 when Dad, uh, he casually asked me, oh, you you wouldn't be interested in taking over the farm, would you? And I, thinking back on it, I probably wasn't the biggest fan at that time of milking cows. <laughs> I I think I, I made the mistake of telling Dad that milking cows was monotonous one night at the dinner table and probably got an hour-long dressing down about how many things in life are monotonous and that that's, you know, if I don't like it, you just got to learn to live with it, I suppose. Uh, and we still joke about that now because um, I would sit on a tractor for 20 hours a day and be quite happy. And if that's not monotonous, I don't know what it is and it's just going up and back. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, we, we quite often joke about how I, I told him that one day and, and it's, it's a pretty formative sort of conversation. It was a very one-way conversation, I must say, but... Yeah, so I wasn't the biggest fan of milking cows at the time. I would have had two sisters and a brother to probably pay out and, and mum and dad to, you know, how that would have worked with them in the in the business. I'm not sure. They, you know, they've they've got to be looked after with succession as well. The dairy was was in need of expansion. Two hundred and fifty cows was sort of maxed out for that for that part of the world. Uh, so we would have had to look at purchasing the neighbours, increasing the herd. It was a little 12-a-side herringbone dairy, so we probably would have had to look at building a new dairy. I had some pretty ordinary memories of Dad, you know, early years of the farm, you know, it was early 80s, so high high interest rates. There was a drought as well, early 80s, so I've got memories of Dad facing his hands at the kitchen table crying. So you were around, around 17-ish when you sort of knew that you weren't heading back on to the family farm. How did that influence your decision-making from then onwards? And I look back on it, to be honest, Matt, and say what could have been if, if you know, I, I think about, you know, geez, I, I could be running a really big, successful family farm by now, but I wouldn't have done all the things that I've done. I wouldn't have the experiences. I would have different experiences, I know, but I, I, I wouldn't have had those experiences and, wouldn't have a lot of the friends I've got. I certainly wouldn't have met my beautiful wife. So that that question gets put away pretty quickly. You know, it's a, it's a pretty fleeting thought. And you you maintained your interest in in ag even uh, post this uh, succession, didn't you? Did you when you're in your second last year of high school? Were you thinking about uh, what the next role would be or what your first role would be out of school? I think. Not having the farm to go back to created probably a lot of confusion for a for a kid of that age. I'm not sure about you guys, but I found decision making as a late teen or someone in my early twenties to be pretty difficult. Yeah, it wasn't always my brain making the decisions, or you know, it was. Um, so I, I just remember this this real confusion. I, I don't know what to do. So so I'm really glad I had a few good people like my mum and dad and my my brother who was 12 years older, sort of were looking out for me. So. I was at a school where where I felt like you were sort of looked down upon if you weren't going to go straight to uni. But I was probably one of the only farmers in the 
in my year group. There's a couple, but not as many probably as passionate about it as I was. And all my mates were going on to become engineers and physios and straight into uni. All, all I was interested in at that stage was playing sport, going to parties and chasing girls, I think. So <laughs> my, my, my grades were, were appalling, though. They were terrible. And even if I did want to go to uni, I, I don't think I would have been able to get in. So, yeah, so that's that's where that confusion came from. I didn't know what I was going to do my, with my life. But I, th- I think Dad sensed this going on with me. And he took me to a farm mm-hmm. recruitment agency and they hooked me up uh, with a job as a jackaroo on a station in the Riverina, sort of 90 k's northwest of Hay. Didn't know anything about it, never really done. Uh, I'd worked with dairy cattle who generally nice and quiet, never done any sheep work and there were there up to 35,000 sheep on this place. So I really think this was, this was the pivotal point in my life that said this is where ag is at for me and and that's yeah really confirmed that ag's the space that i wanted to to work in so it wasn't quite a light bulb moment but yeah yeah and from there tom you, you spent a lot of time honing your practical skills what was it that then made you want to go on and study and where was that change in thinking from you know wanting to get out on farm straight out of school and then going back to study later on Mum and dad are huge on education, so it's always talked about that that I needed to do something. My brother's got a ag science degree and an MBA. My little sister's got a science law degree, so that's always been encouraged of us. The thought behind that is that whatever you do, you want to be good at it. So, yeah, so the, the thought was always there that I probably should do something. Thankfully, here's my dad coming into it again. He, uh, when I finished school, or just before I finished school, he booked me into an orientation day or night at Marcus Oldham College down in Geelong. And yeah, dad had been there and he still raves about it. He, he left there in 1968. It sort of sounded like, if anything, it was just going to be a good, fun, fun time. And yeah, the people I met there were my people. I could talk farming 24 hours a day. So you start being surrounded by people who are the same. They've got they've got the similar passions. So, yeah, thought after that, I better enrol after two years jackarooing. So, the thought process behind it really was, yeah, to build the skills to be really good at what I'm doing. But also, if I wanted to be anything more than a jackaroo or a, or a farmhand, and and don't get me wrong, there's there's nothing wrong with being a jackaroo or a farmhand. But if I wanted to get further with a career in ag. I needed a qualification. After finishing and you've done two qualifications, you then went on to explore a lot more of the country. What were the highlights for you when you did more of that large-scale commercial farm work? The first role out of Marcus was large irrigation property and it was a. this was a, what I feel was a really pivotal moment in my career where it was great fun. Uh, I'd been working there on uni holidays and was offered almost to to be the understudy to the farm manager with a view to take over from him one day and Fiona had been offered a job as the on-farm accountant and they built us a new house and I said, this is this is our job, Fiona. It was, it was 25,000 acres of irrigation and just a monstrous place and I was sort of thinking, this this is it. It sort of didn't end pan out that well. Didn't weren't treated uh, the best, but 
got to, and this is the pivotal moment. We we pulled out the job ads in the that must have been the land newspaper. Closed my eyes and pointed, and any job would have been better than where we were. And it, thankfully, uh, thankfully, I pointed to an assistant manager's job with a company called Warakiri, who a reasonable size back then, but they are big now. So, and that was on one of their two Queensland properties, southwest of Dolby and the Darling Downs. So. Yeah, packed up and drove the thirteen or sixteen hours, whatever it was, up to Dolby, and and to us that was like a breath of fresh air. We we sort mm-hmm. of felt uh, with an organisation like that at the time, we we felt like we were cared about, and we had lots of time and effort and training put, well, certainly put into me, and the organisation I think was was full of similar minded people as well. They were probably in the same predicament as us with with no farms to go back to but with a passion for ag. So so it felt like we were part of this big family and real turning point in in both our lives, I think. So after a couple of years we uh, I sort of manned up and got down on one knee and proposed to Fee and <laughs> thought because uh, I thought she was going to leave me after you know I was just making her make her wait forever. Not long after that, we were yeah on a very hungover drive back from a party somewhere, and said, "Yeah, there's no." We'd been there with that role for a couple of years, and thought there's no no career progression on the horizon with with the company. So, why don't we just go overseas on a working holiday after our wedding? And and we said, "Yeah, that's a great idea, great idea." So we we booked tickets, we resigned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And about six weeks before I was finishing up. The, I got a call from uh, from the boss and he said, oh, the manager on the other larger Queensland property had, had resigned and the job was mine if I wanted it. So that's, you know, that's being a being a farm manager was was sort of, that was the, the goal at the time. That's where I wanted to be. And that was obviously on the, the uh, east coast of Australia and you're not on the east coast of Australia anymore, are you? Was there a, a catalyst for change there? There was, yeah. So we did have a bit of time in between, in between Warakiri. We went and managed, uh, yeah, ten thousand hectares of of cropping down between Moree and Gundawindi, and yeah, northern New South Wales. That was that was really sort of sealed the deal for me. As you know, this is I've made it. You know, I'm, I'm you know, as a forty two million dollar farm. This is this is this is where it's at. It was five, yeah, five separate properties, all in different states of disrepair and the, the new company that I was working for said here's a is a laptop a phone and a ute you use contract labor to turn it into five highly productive cropping properties so yeah five years doing that was was amazing challenging you know we had a couple of I think we had two one in a hundred year floods a bit of drought thrown in there as well so yeah it was it was interesting times but yeah, really formative now. That was another really important time for me where I had to really prove myself. You know, I've, I've done all right with Warakiri for a couple of years and on a smaller property, but can I transfer it into into a, into a much bigger enterprise? And sort of think I did. Yeah, did all right. But we, uh, yeah, had, a, had this phone call, yeah, talking about getting back to WA Got a phone call from a father-in-law. I think it was about 2004, saying yeah, this really close friend of mine who I'd got to know from Coolan. He was he was on his wife's family farm, about 45 minutes from here, 
uh, he yeah didn't make it home from golf one night, and um, yeah left his uh, his beautiful wife and two very young kids behind. And uh, I remember the phone call, and I remember the immediate reaction saying, "I've got to help. I've got to do got to do something to to help my friend." And um, yeah, strangely enough, the the next day the phone rang, and it was uh, it was my mate's father-in-law who's who's farm it was um called and said can you please come over and help us keep the farm on track bit of stuff we need to sort out at this end so we'd been sort of looking looking at going back to the west anyway we were you know we were a long way from family i was 1600 k's from my family and fiona was about three and a half thousand k's from her family in in coolin so it sort of ticked the boxes it was the, it was the wrong circumstances and my mate had been, he'd been trying to get me to come and work for him for a couple of years beforehand and, you know, the timing had never been right, not quite the right opportunity, and it got us back to the West. Must have been an incredibly tough decision to make, but I think it's it, it feels like it's sort of reminiscent of your value that you place on relationships. Would that be, be fair to say? Like you, you really do value relationships quite highly. Yeah, very much so. I, I think if you're haven't got good relationships with someone you're, you're buggered from the start it's yeah it's very important and I'm, I'm really glad that we we kept that relationship with jerry you know it might not have worked out but we've kept that relationship and she's thriving in in she lives in perth now with her two kids so yeah i'm really thankful for that and probably another relationship where we probably felt a bit lost after things didn't turn out that well there and thankfully yeah fiona's sister and her partner at the time well whose husband now ran the local landmark in Coolan, and it was a landmark might a 10 gift shop and a cafe all under the one roof so there's a lot going on there and they said look we're, we're new to this business can you know you can come and you can come and help us out so that uh, I suppose that's a family relationship again you know you get back to relationships so the family relationship that that worked and we moved to Coolin, which is my wife's hometown, and can't really say I loved the the retail side of <laughs> of that job. I, I love meeting the meeting, you know, talking to all the customers and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, uh, probably delivering chemical and making sure the uh, you know the shelves are stocked and that sort of stuff probably wasn't for me. But Coolin's a an amazing place, so it thrives on volunteering. My wife, yeah, Fiona, was volunteering in on the local board of our of our community bank and she came home from this meeting one night said uh oh, your name got mentioned tonight for the new new business development manager's role i was like oh is that right is it um as <laughs> <laughs> if fiona there's not am i allowed to swear in this and can you beep it out we can beep it out you're all good because <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna swear as if fiona there's not a chance in hell that I'll ever work for a bank. <laughs> so with those those words, I'll never work for a bank. Uh, fresh in my mind, I about two weeks later, I submitted my resume and I'm very good with people. I'm, I'm not bad with numbers. I've got all the skills to look at uh, look at bank books and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, well, this, this actually makes sense. So, yeah, walked into the interview, said, I, I don't know anything about banking but I know about farming and I think that'll help build good relationships with with farmers. So 
yes, that was over four years ago now. And, and you know, one thing that really stands out for me, Tom, in your story and hearing you talk about the adventure that you've been on and you've really rolled with the punches but you've also taken, and to use a really bad ag pun, you've really taken the bull by the horns with the opportunities that have come your way. What advice would you give, if any, 17-year-old Tom that felt super confused and had no idea what he was going to do after school? Just have a crack. Have a crack. The easy answer for anything is say no. So if you say yes, it's the harder option because it's it creates a bit of work, but, geez, it opens things up for you. Opens you up to meeting a lot of new people. Ag people are my people, so I've met some incredible people through through saying yes to things. Mm, I think in the spirit of saying yes, you also have a few other hats that you wear that you've said yes to. You know, community is a really key part of agriculture and keeping rural and regional communities alive is not just about having successful farms, but it's about having successful towns and communities and activities. Can you tell us a little bit about your community in Coolan and and the things that you guys do to help make sure that there's a great community for the future for your kids? So probably to paint the picture a little bit, Coolan's a Coolan's a tiny little town in the wheat belt of WA, about 280 k's east southeast of Perth. Town population would go sort of sort of closer to 300 than 350, and it's just built on volunteering. There's only one town in over east that has a higher level of volunteering than than Coolan, so you would blink and miss it almost, but. There is always something going on here. So, uh, yeah, and it's vibrant. We, Everyone's very passionate about this little town, uh, really punches above its weight. We have a bush races meeting, which started 25 years ago. They, they, the thought process was let's get cooling on the map a bit and uh, any proceeds from this little bush races meet can go back into our town and we've capped the numbers at 4,000 now. We, we have 4,000 people rock up. Every year, uh, we have 220 volunteers that give up their, a lot of their time and, and so much effort and passion goes into it. And we start, you know, we, we're starting to make some really good good profits from that. We've recently put $80,000 into our local little district high school. I think the bush races alone would have put, it's getting it's between one and a half and, uh, well, one million and one and a half million back into the town. So... That's uh, that's only one one little thing of and and so yes saying yes Annie I, I said yes to getting on the committee and I'm now the chair of the committee so it's a really privileged role you know it's such a big part of this town and they've let this guy that he's a Victorian which uh, you know everyone loves to hate Victorians wherever you are so they've given me a shot and it's really the sort of town that if if you're prepared to have a crack it'll get around you and support you in whatever you do. So, yeah. What a, a fantastic story, Tom, and, and thanks very much for, for sharing it with us from a young fella in Ballarat to a, a jackaroo in Hay and into the corporate world and now a, a asset to the community. I think agriculture would be 
be very happy to to have you in this space and, and certainly something you should be very proud of. Thank you. Yes, yeah, it is. Agriculture is just, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be involved in it? It's You, you could be a you be an engineer, you could be a lawyer, you could be a politician, scientist, you know, get your hands dirty being a working on a farm, but it can all be done within within the ag industry. So you can have a long and very fulfilling career in ag. So yeah, certainly what's not to like about that? It's uh, filled with very passionate people and you get to feed and clothe the world. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, one. 100% agree. And there's one last question that we ask all of our guests, and that's what brand of work boots do you wear? Well, I probably buck the trend with uh, corporate workwear within the bank. I still wear shorts and I wear Blundstone steel caps, zip up steel caps, which gets a laugh every now and then from people who say, you know, what the hell's a banker <laughs> doing wearing steel cap boots? But uh, I'd rather spend all. All my days uh, visiting customers on farm, yeah, I get out and about a lot and, yeah, that was one habit that I haven't been able to kick is wearing steel cap boots. So, yep, looks, looks a bit weird with the, uh, with the corporate uniform, but, uh, no, nah, that's, that's my boot of choice. Uh, fantastic. Oh, thanks very much for joining us, Tom. Thanks, Tom. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert. And I'm Matt Howe, and we'll chat to you next time.